The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. In the pasture of the world, I endlessly push aside the tall grasses in search of the self. Following unnamed rivers, lost upon the interpenetrating paths of distant mountains, my strength failing, my vitality exhausted, I cannot find the self. I only hear the locusts chirping through the forest at night. <clears throat> we are in the midst of session. We are at the threshold of Ango, and I wanted to explore a little bit of uh, training. What is training? We are a training monastery. We're in a hall of training. We are training the mind. Buddhism speaks of the path in this way. But what is training? There are many endeavors in the human realm in which we engage, learning, developing skills, going over things repetitively over and over and over again. In the arts, in language, in science, in carpentry, in virtually anything that we do, there is a training a developing of one's capacity to be accomplished at something, to integrate something, to take something, a body of knowledge, a body of skills, and to, in a sense, make it our own, which is a little bit of a dangerous thing to say in, in such an individualistically oriented culture, because it can suggest appropriating or just making it up in the form of my own desires. That's not what it's meant in Buddhism. What it means is to have it be so thoroughly integrated that it's your natural self. The Buddha spoke of marga, a path, not religion. That's not a Buddhist term. We raise bodhicitta, we study, we reflect on the teachings, we practice. The Buddha said that the three forms of training in the path are the precepts, calming the mind, and gaining insight. Well, what are we training in? Well, when we sit down and take our seat and begin the revolution, what do we find? Thoughts, emotions, sensations, memories, judgments, anticipations of future things. We go into fantasies. We see cycles returning again and again. We see things happening within ourselves with great, great regularity. Thought patterns, emotional patterns, ways of reacting, responding to things and people. Cycles of gathering in and trying to preserve, cycles of pushing away and trying to avoid, 
patterns of dullness and sleepiness and apathy, lethargy, of doubt and insecurity, of restlessness and agitation, and of quiet and stillness, dukkha. We come into practice fully formed, (laughs) right? By the time we get to practice, we've already put the whole kit together. The self is formed. It's still forming because it is only a process. It's only a constant unfolding, but it's well unfolded by the time we come into practice. It's been socialized. It's been imprinted upon. It's become habitual. It seems to move by itself. Our mind seems to have a mind of itself, of its own, doesn't it? It seems to do what it wants, even when we don't want it to do that. And so this verse is, of course, from the first of the Oxford herding um, verses and portraits which depict the path. It's an ancient portrayal of a of a Buddhist path, but a universal path within Buddhism. And it's typically depicted as an ox or a bull, but gender has nothing to do with it. It's the self, that creature, whatever it is, whatever name it's given, is the self. But I think the, if you think of uh, uh, another creature, it has to be something that has the capacity to be both gentle, but also restless, unruly, rebellious. You get it. It's the self. And so what is training in the midst of all of this that we encounter when we sit? In the pasture of the world, I endlessly push aside the tall grasses in search of the self. This pasture is our mind, it's our history, our perceptions. It's the field in which the self functions, arises, operates, grasps, rejects. It's the world of phenomena. And grasses in Buddhism usually depicts delusion, but it's the many things. How many grasses? How many blades of grass are there in a square foot or yard or in the meadow outside? Many, many, many. And so the grass is a way of sort of portraying our delusions, all of phenomena, the things we get entangled in. They seed easily. They grow opportunistically. They'll grow anywhere they can. If the conditions are fertile, then they proliferate. If the conditions are not so fertile, they might still take seed, take root, but not be so abundant. And if the conditions are not right, they won't. Searching for the self. So as we sit, it's as though we're in the center of an ongoing stream of of messages being sent out from within, being received from without. And in the midst of it, the question is, who? 
Who's on the receiving end of all of this? Who is the one sending out these messages? Where are they coming from? Where are they going to? Is it a person? Is it me? Is it you? Is it an entity? Is it a soul? If dukkha is disharmony, what are we harmonizing ourselves with exactly? What is it that desires, that fears, that wants, that pursues, that retreats, that gets hurt, that feels threatened, that feels happy, that loves life, that fears death? Who is it that is having all of that? When I first came into Buddhism, knowing very, very little, really, about Buddhism, but having sat for 10 years and worn out a couple of books that I had. And I would listen to Dadaroshi talk about the self, the nature of the self, realizing the self. It somehow seemed abstract to me, kind of philosophical. I didn't really get the connection between that and everything that I was experiencing, not realizing that that was everything that I was experiencing. And how do we, again, in terms of what is training, how do we move amidst these grasses, having grown so accustomed to them, habituated ourselves to them, accommodated ourselves to them, how do we begin to see them when we've really been trained not to? When Ta Chi was studying with Master Nanwei, he used to sit ceaselessly, and one day Nanway said to him, what are you figuring to do sitting there in meditation? What are you figuring to do? And Dogen says, we should really calmly give concentrated effort to the investigation of this question. Does it mean that there must be some figuring above and beyond seated meditation? Is there something we should be doing outside of our meditation? Figuring out? being active in? Is there no path to be figured outside of seated meditation? Is it only to be happening in meditation? What is it that we are to be figuring and doing? Should there be no figuring at all? Or is this asking what kind of figuring occurs at the very time we are practicing seated meditation? What are we doing? Not just what are we focusing on the breath, the koan, shikantaza, visualization. But what are we doing? We should make concentrated effort to understand this in detail. Dogen says, rather than love the carved dragon, we should go on to love the real dragon. The dragon is the enlightened being, your true self. Rather than love the carved one, love the real one. It's the carved dragon that we've become accommodated to, and we take as the true one. And so how do we begin to see that it is carved? What does that mean? And how do we see the true one? How do we see and understand what we have been trained, in a sense, to not see and to not understand? Not so much deliberately, it's not like there's a conspiracy to 
train all of us at birth to not understand Buddha Dharma. <laughs> but then in being trained in the world as a world of opposites and separate forces opposing each other. Somebody asked early, earlier about how do we gain insight into the self? How do we gain insight into the self as a beginning student, for instance? What does that mean? We tend to think that we have to practice and develop and and mature certain aspects of our practice and our mind and our self before we can gain insight. Well, all of those things that are arising when we sit are aspects of the self. The thoughts and emotions and judgments and memories and fears and joys, all of it, are just different aspects, reflections, attributes of what we call the self, this person. And that as they arise, we see them keenly. And in the beginning, we don't really see them very keenly. They're distant, they're dull, they're fuzzy. But we begin to sharpen our capacity to see keenly, vividly, brightly. And we see that they arise and they pass. They arise and they pass. We may have meditative experiences that are very powerful or encouraging, and we want them to preserve. We want to preserve them, but we can't. They arise and pass too. Everything, in fact, when we're watching closely, has that same quality, that same nature. And some of the things come very lightly and go lightly, and some things come with a lot of weight and thunder and lightning and stay around longer than we want. And so it seems pretty clear that they're all different. Some are light and some are heavy. Some are nice and some are not nice. Some leave you alone and some of them don't. The mind seems to have a mind of its own. The things that arise seem to have a mind of their own. We can be actively trying to let go and, we, and we're not, we can't. We can be actively trying to hold on and we can't. It passes. Something happens and we react and it seems like something that happened did that to me. But the more we see, the more we understand, we see that that's not really what's going on. That the mind in Buddhism is basically like God. Creates the world. It doesn't take seven days. It takes one instant. And that world contains heaven and hell and everything in between. That's what we need to begin seeing the creation of the mind, the creating of the mind. And that even as it creates, it creates impermanence. The creation itself is impermanent. And all of that is nothing but the self. And the Buddha said that all of that, all of dukkha arises because of some sense of separation, dividedness, duality, Things opposed, standing apart. And as we 
see more and more that things are not inherently heavy and light, hard and soft, long and short, but that it seems to have a great deal, perhaps everything to do with our mind. We are gaining insight. Insight in, in Buddhism very often means a non-conceptual insight into self-nature. But more broadly, insight means to see something we haven't seen before. Or to see something we have seen before, but more clearly, more deeply. To experience something we may have had a sense of or have experienced, but now it has more of a piercing, penetrating, permeating quality. It transforms. And so how do we gain insight into the self? Don't look away. Dogen says it this way, don't value what's far away and don't despise it. Just become completely familiar with it. Right? Don't love what's over there and hate what's right here. Just become familiar with it. Familiar, get to know it, not in the normal way. What's its story? Exchanging energies, energies here, become completely familiar with it by not touching it. By not trying to do something. When we love it, we want to pull it in. When we hate it, we want to push it away. And in that, we're not seeing it. We're seeing something. What is it that we're seeing? The self. Not the thing itself. Don't despise what is near at hand or value it. Become completely familiar with it. In other words, wherever it appears, near or far, whatever it is, don't grasp and don't reject. It's the fundamental guiding principle of Buddha Dharma. Based in our basic impulse of pain and pleasure. It's ancient. It's primordial. It's genetic. Right? It's shared by all, I imagine, all living things to turn away from what is life-threatening and turn towards what's life-affirming. Dogen says, don't take your eyes lightly, but don't give them weight. It's a middle way. Don't ignore, but don't make more. Don't give way to the ears and don't take them lightly. And implicit in this is all of the senses, each of the senses and your mind. Don't ignore, because that's the self arising. If we want to gain insight, we have to see it as it arises. But in seeing it, see it lightly. Don't give it more weight than it's due. Make your eyes and ears clear and sharp. That's what not valuing and not despising does, is it allows our mind and every aspect of mind and all of our senses and being to, re to reclaim its natural 
clarity and vividness. And so what is it to train? To live that, basically. And to use all that we encounter as a calling in, as a, as a, um, a call to the Dharma, to make your eyes and ears clear and sharp, to not get entangled and to not push away. Along the riverbank under the trees, I discover footprints. These traces can be no more hidden than one's nose, looking heavenward. And this is said in many different places in the teachings, that when we encounter the self more directly, it's as though, it's as though we have encountered something that we have known all along, like meeting a parent in the world, in the, on the road. These traces can no more be hidden than one's nose. That we begin to discover footprints. That as our mind becomes more attuned, as we become less afraid, more courageous, more eager, more trusting, then we see that those footprints are pretty much everywhere. Both the footprints of the carved dragon, right? That's the, you know, the various forms of wreckage of samsara. But all the footprints of the true dragon, which are more like footprints in the sand, as soon as you see them, the wave comes in and washes them clean. This real dragon can't be created. There's no need to try. And so really all the practice training is learning to allow the, the carving of the carved dragon to rest. And because that tendency, that impulse is so strong to do, to get, to get somewhere, to make something happen, to fix, to repair, to make better, it takes considerable effort and all of our virtues to be able to truly let that carving rest. Avalokiteshvara doing deep Prajnaparamitas clearly saw emptiness of the skandhas, that all of the parts of the self that make up the self, the inner workings, are empty of self, of of skandhas, of Buddhism, of Dharma, of right and wrong. That there is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind means that in the eye there is nothing and no one that is seen. There's just seeing. There's no one and nothing that is hearing. Right? If you dissect an organ, you don't find seeing, you don't find hearing. If you dissect a person, you don't find a self. Hueka said to Bodhidharma, my mind is not at rest, 
Bodhidharma said, bring me that mind that is not at rest. And Hueco came back and said, I've searched and I've searched and I cannot find that mind. That's training. That's, in a phrase, the whole of Buddhist practice. And then taking that forward. But in order to not find the mind, Hueco had to genuinely, deeply want to find that mind. It wasn't an exercise. He didn't start out thinking, oh, I know there's no mind to find, so I'll just go over here for a while and then come back and say, oh, couldn't find it. (laughs) His life depended on locating the mind of his distress to bring it to his teacher. And that's why he could come back and say, I have searched and searched and have not found the mind and be liberated by that. I hear the song of the nightingale. The verses go on, the sun is warm, the wind is mild, the willows are green along the shore. Things are just as they are. How many times have you heard that? It doesn't sound so complicated. Isn't everybody already doing that? Apparently not. The grass is green all the way through. The apple is sweet all over. But even then, the self, the self, the historical self, the karmic self, the conditioned self, conditioned in Buddhism, remember, means that which comes together in an interdependent web of causation. That self still has life, still has habits, still has power, still has beliefs, still has faith in itself. And that's where the ox, the bull, or your replacement creature comes in. I seize it with a terrific struggle. Its great will and power are inexhaustible. In the Shurangaman Sutra, I think it is, the Buddha says, when you start to shake the house rafters in beams, Mara is not going to stand by and let you do that without a struggle. Mara is going to raise some hell. It's going to push back. It's going to create doubt. It's going to actively try and dismantle this path of dismantling. And Mars' voice, of course, is yours. And Mars' insight into your particularly, particular set of vulnerabilities is yours. That's why Mara is so powerful. It is me, it is you, it's my mind, it's your mind. The patterns of a lifetime don't just dissolve. It's one of the misleading aspects of a lot of the koans. Is it's, there's a question, there's an answer, there's enlightenment. It seems to be the end of the story, right? There's no sequel. There's no follow-up. There's no, you know, next day report. It's over. It's not. That's presenting one important moment within an ongoing path. That is to be understood. 
And so it goes on to say the whip and rope are necessary, else it might stray off down some dusty road. Being well-trained, though, it becomes naturally gentle. The whip could be your aspiration. The rope could be your mindfulness. Sometimes we need to be direct and firm. Sometimes we need to be open and relaxed, gentle. Practice has many forms, no fixed forms. Many approaches, no formulaic approach. Because it has to be responsive to the moment, but the moment is happening inside of each one of us. It's not abstract. And so how do you and I, in any particular moment, in every particular moment, respond to this? That's what training is, is developing our understanding, our capacity, our skillfulness, our experience, our confidence, through countless, countless, countless moments of the self-arising and responding. And that's why, in a very real sense, the longer we practice, the more important it is to practice. You know, we tend to think just the opposite. You know, it's like, okay, you got to really apply yourself for a while, but then you can ease back and just coast. It's not, it's actually the opposite. Because in a very real sense, as that self becomes more naturally gentle, the field becomes more clearly open and broad and wide. And because the ways in which the self still arises can be more subtle. And because we should be, um, you know, uh, developing our skillfulness. So we're more capable, like we're learning how to practice and are able to do it more effectively, more in accord with the Dharma. And so it has more power. And so in a sense, our natural capacity, which is always complete, our present moment capacity is starting to, in a sense, catch up a little bit. And so we should continue. The mind becomes clearer, the heart becomes softer, more generous. We become more resilient. Challenges continue. The old ones, they still arise, but they're not so difficult. New ones, we gain confidence in, in, in putting them to work to help us become more free. Some old patterns drop away. Some continue to arise. See them as they are. They are not the self, but they are our responsibility. In a sense, they are not personal, but they're our business. I am the owner of my karma, heir of my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma. And so to think that those patterns are something that will at some point never rise again or should never rise again is unskillful. It's an unskillful thought. It's to think that they will always continue to arise is also unskillful. Because both views are, are, 
overly concerned with something that is happening to me or you, that either we've decided will continue to happen or won't continue to happen, as though it is something. Just don't know. Or if you want to know anything, know how to practice it. Then you don't have to worry. If you have something coming up that you need to do, something challenging, something new, something old, and you have, in a sense, trained in how to, how to do that thing, right? then you don't have to worry. You rely on your training. And when that means encountering something that you've never had to encounter before, and so you can't think, okay, what did I do last time? Because there was no last time. Rely on your training. And let your training bring you into service in that moment to the best of your ability. But don't worry. <laughs> Just don't value what's far away and don't despise it. Be familiar with it. And when it seems unfamiliar, it's the same practice. Don't love it. Don't hate it. If it's, it's something that seems to have never appeared before, now is the time to study it. Now is the time to become familiar with it. And because all things have the same nature, when we understand that, we already see the most important aspect. Because all things are interpenetrating, it's not utterly different. It's not something that has never, ever appeared in any way before. And so now there's no fear, no hindrance in the mind. And if there is fear, don't worry. No fear. Be familiar with it. You don't have to hate it. You don't have to love it. And so now we can meet this time, this day, this world, this uncertainty, this change, this unexpected. Slowly I reach home. I am serene. And now the self too can rest. Whip, rope, person, self all merge into one nature. The many forms and practices, teachings, all the skillful means, in a sense, can now rest. They have been extraordinarily helpful. They continue to be helpful. But now there's no confusion that they exist as something separate. Now there's no attachment or doubt. So we can more and more use what comes <clears throat> to us freely. <clears throat> so when aspects of our delusion arise or the self arise, okay, okay. When the aspects of our light nature arise, okay. We don't have to love one, hate the other, reject one, attach to the other. Too many steps have been taken returning to the root and the source. But really, 
Was there any other way? <laughs> See, that's the thing. So what we find is that not only were not so many steps needed, but we actually haven't really taken one. We've never stepped away. We never left home. And searching for the self, we never were absent of it and searching for the true self. It was never missing. But the search in the time of the Buddha and all the way down and still seems essential. Because there's something happen that happens when we seek something essential. Dr. she called the spiritual imperative. When that takes up within this body and mind and becomes necessary, everything begins to come into alignment with that. Even within our lack of understanding, our lack of experience, our doubt and so on, things are beginning to come together in alignment. That's what happens in the searching, seeking mind. And so finally, I mingle with the people of the world. I use no magic to extend my life. Not necessary. It's wanting to live, and so we take care of this body, we take care of this mind, we take care of our house to live, not just so that we can cling to life, but so that we can continue to give, to help, to do something good. But we don't need to live forever. We don't need to live forever. We live as long as it's time to live. And when it's no longer time to live, we say goodbye to this life. And within that, which is a practice, and wherever we might think we are with that question of life and death, we'll see, right? We'll see when we encounter all the many forms of life and death in ourselves and in others. And we can put that to good use. That's training. Now before me, the dead trees become alive. What appeared dead, inert, static, pointless, without value, comes alive. And everywhere we look, that's what, was, that's what we're seeing. A world coming alive. Because of the way the teachings and practices are presented, we're given instruction. We can too easily reduce it to just instructions, an exercise, a method, techniques. That's one way of looking at it. But if we're really practicing, we'll see that that's not really sufficient to speak of this that we are in the midst of. And to appreciate how this is training for life, to live. Of course, we want to alleviate suffering. We want to be happy. And the training is for that, and it's to live however it may be, whatever today is.
in my sense, until we are perfectly enlightened, and that may be a, t- a ways down the road, <laughs> is that we will continue to find challenges. We b- will be challenged. That's training. It's a way of looking at things. And Buddhism is not unique in that. Looking at unfortunate misfortune, looking at things that are difficult, and trying to turn them into something positive, that's not that unique. But the Buddha Dharma helps us to understand the basis of that. It's not just a nice thought. It's actually how things are. And there's a path. There is a training. There is training to bring that forth in concert at every step with an unfolding world, which we are, for the most part, not really in control of. And so let's appreciate that there is so much mm, that we are in the midst of. It's sort of like, you know, when we're born as a little baby and then as a toddler and we start like, you know, getting a sense of things. We have a sense of things. And that's true and it's appropriate to that stage of our development. But it's limited. It's not the same as it hopefully will be 10, 20, 50, 70 years later when the world has become so much larger so much more broad. And so, but let's not let it get too complicated. It is not complicated at all. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.